It's April 13th, 2023. This is Rook. Well, hi there. Welcome to episode 255 of Rook. Don't believe it's over. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam Dustanazi. Sturut Bashama. Don't believe it's over. Now hang on, stick with me. I'll bet some of you already had enough because there he goes talking about that Iran revolution stuff. But it's essential for those of us in the diaspora to heed this sign, to embrace this line. Don't believe it's over. Because there is a prevailing sentiment in some circles that the Iranian uprising of the past year is done. That women life freedom is finished and the Islamic regime has once again won. But the fundamental problem with believing it's over is that it's not true. And doing so ignores all those that continue to fight, too. I know you're tired. I know you're traumatized. I know it's been agonizing and overanalyzed. I know that a free, democratic, and secular Iran sometimes feels like a dream. And you're exhausted by some so-called opposition leader debating a perceived opponent rather than the regime. But don't believe it's over. Because of all the children and women and men who've already given their lives. Because of the mothers who've lost their sons or the husbands who've lost their wives. Don't believe it's over because you are needed. It doesn't have to be all-consuming. It doesn't have to be 24-7. But you're needed to fight for those who are bravely battling hard and to remember those who've already gone to heaven. Don't believe it's over because young Iranian women are continuing to refuse and resist mandatory clothing laws with a new campaign of photos in defiance. Because men and women are dancing in the street to flout the regime as they did in front of cafes in Amol two days ago. Don't believe it's over because schoolgirls are still being poisoned and Tumaj is still in solitary. Don't allow that to be normalized. Don't believe it's over because the numbers of those losing their sight will forever be compromised. Don't believe it's over because we need to honor Kion Pierre Falak's father, who is courageously refusing to allow the regime to pin the death of his son on an innocent man. Don't believe it's over because there are thousands of activists and political prisoners and ordinary people who are not giving up from Sanandaj to Tehran to Baluchistan. Don't believe it's over because Golroch Irayi, an Iranian civil rights activist who's been detained for 200 days, has been sentenced to seven years in prison. Don't believe it's over. Balance your news diet if you need to. Make concessions to getting back to your routine, but believe that you can make a difference in between. Like Vahid Beheshti on a hunger strike in London to get the UK to finally put the IRGC on the terrorist list. Those of us in the diaspora need to keep our governments held to account. Don't believe it's over while we know the casualties will mount. Revolutions don't happen in a day, or a week, or sometimes a year. Let's make sure those in Iran and around the world recognize that we are still here. Coming up, political scientist Behnam Taleblu on how Western policy on Iran can be changed with the right kind of approach. And first up, the musical director of The Voice Persia, Ervin Khachikian, joins us from L.A. This is Rook, episode 255, Don't Believe It's Over. Hi there. Hope you're doing well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. We are 
on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Welcome to a new edition of Rook, episode 255. Speaking of not believing it's over, my little rant there, a big shout out and congrats to Shervin Hajipur, whose song Bad Oyeh, which of course turned into an anthem for the anti-regime uprising, uh, and also Nilufar Hamedi and Elohe Mohammadi, the journalists detained for covering Masa Amini's death in custody. Uh, they have all been named to Time Magazine's most influential people of 2023. The news just broke a couple of hours ago. That's very positive to hear and well-deserved. And in fact, I'm going to discuss Shervin with our first guest today, the songwriter, the performer, the producer, Ervin Khachikian, who will be joining me from L.A. in just a, just a few minutes. He's also um, recently finished a, a stint as the musical director of The Voice Persia. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've seen him. Maybe you're a big fan. And even if you're not, <laughs> he's coming right up. Uh, looking forward to having Ervin back on the program later in the show. You don't want to miss political scientist and foreign policy expert Behnom Taleblu, who is joining me from Washington, D.C. I'm going to put the questions to him about why there has not been more action from the Biden administration in D.C., where Behnom lives, when it comes to challenging the Islamic Republic and why the ongoing obsession uh, that is with the U.S. and the and the EU as well, with resuscitating the nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Why are they continuing to jockey to get that deal done? Um, and also, how are we to interpret the new bromance between the Iranian regime and, wait for it, Saudi Arabia, as you may have heard over the last uh, week or two? We'll get to all of that with political scientist and uh, foreign policy expert Behnam Taleblu. Pega is uh, sick um, and not here <laughs> for the roundup. And um, uh, I hope you get better, Pega. I know you're listening. And uh, and Pega is sick because Super P, Parisa, was sick or is sick as well. And somehow other members of the Rook team are so far um, surviving. But uh, but uh, it's coming for all of us, I feel. Anyway, I uh, hope you guys get better soon. We miss you and uh, be well. We are coming, and we'll, we'll be back with the roundup next week with Pega. I'm sure she'll be better by then. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. Remember, if you'd like to see uh, visuals with what you're hearing with, uh, on Rook, uh, switch over to YouTube. And uh, our interview with Azadeh um, Rojan, the Swedish member of parliament uh, that we had on for a feature interview from, uh, she joined us from Stockholm on Monday. You can watch that in its entirety on video on YouTube right now, as well as the interview with Dr. K from last week. Uh, go to Rook Media uh, on YouTube or link to it from our website, rookmedia.com. And if you like your descriptions in social media with um, uh, with the bulletins and the, the episodes in both English and in Persian, you can join us on Telegram where Ahai uh, Roham translates things into Persian, so you can read it in Persian as well. If you do go to our our website, rookmedia.com, you can become a Rook member there with our new Patreon page. Um, you go to the Support Us button at our website, 
and it takes you to the Patreon page where you can become, uh, you can do a one-time donation or you can become a regular member uh, with a bronze or silver or gold membership. And we really appreciate this for those of you who uh, have made Rook part of your regular media diet. If you can uh, become a, a Rook member on Patreon, it helps us. And um, Venus Memory is a brand new gold sponsor. So thank you, Venus. We really appreciate it. Uh, and of course, if you're a gold sponsor, or actually if you're any sponsor of any kind at all, meaning any uh, Rook member on Patreon, uh, as simple as 10 bucks a month, uh, you get some extras. So you get um, little videos we send out, little bulletins, newsletters, and, uh, and invites to our live program, which uh, there's one coming up not too long from now in, in Toronto. So again, rookmedia.com, the support us button, or you can go to the Patreon page where you can also um, find us on Patreon at Rook Media. All right, let me get to my first guest today, an Iranian Armenian American singer, songwriter, producer, director, Evin Khachikian. He's a talented musician who has worked with a variety of well-known figures in the music industry from Serge Tankian of A System of a Down to Iranian pop stars such as Andy and Sylvester Komeshi and Martik. Ervin was born and raised in Tehran into an Armenian family. His music journey started with playing the organ in a church in Tehran before the Islamic Revolution. Then in the early 80s, he moved to the United States at the age of 13 with his family, where he pursued his passion for music. He's since become globally known for his songs and his production work and his solo band Carmandon. Most recently, Ervin has been lending his talents to a few major music television shows, including The Voice Persia, where he was the musical director uh, when it was filmed in Stockholm, I guess over the last year. It, it aired this winter. The finale was uh, just airing last month. Maybe you saw it, The Voice Persia. Now Ervin has a live show coming up this weekend in Los Angeles called Zen, Voices of Freedom, with a mission of celebrating the female voices of Iran, featuring Gelare Shebani and Niaz Navab and Golazin and more. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that with Ervin. And right now, here he is, Ervin Khachikian, joining me from Los Angeles. Hello, sir. Hello, hello, sir, to you and your team. Nice to see you. And nice. I can see you, for those of people who are watching it on YouTube, they can see you. For the people who are listening on the podcast, you look very khoshtip. Hey, is there any other way? <laughs> Have you had some work done? Why do you look so good? Have you been, uh, have you got a bunch of surgery? <laughs> I take care of myself. I, I walk, especially recently during COVID, I think we all kind of blew up a little bit, you know. So recently I've been trying to stay on this um, strict diet and I don't eat late. I don't drink wine as much. And, you know, I just, uh, I hike sometimes twice a day and I, and I try to stay good. You know, I think um, in, a, in a, the crazy world that we're in, uh, we, you know, we got to take care of ourselves. And the parts that you can't take care of yourself, you go see the plastic surgeon. <laughs> I don't, yes, I just figured you'd be, you've paid to get this done. I mean, you look, you looked really good on the voice too. I want to get into that. But um, what's this thing about you take cold showers now? What is this, uh, this new regimen you have? Yeah, it's, it was, you know, it was more of a, a daring thing to myself as uh, you know, just a challenge, like standing there under the cold shower early in the morning, 
your uh, you know your body wants to move but you tell your body i'm gonna stand here and you're gonna stand here with me mm. it's more for that you know and i stand there and i breathe and the first first week it was like three seconds i was like this is crazy and then i kind of build it up and as i'm there i tell myself you can do it you will stand here and if even though it's freezing in about 20 seconds it's gonna get warmer you know how soon after you wake up do you do this oh within i have my coffee and my clothes everything is ready the night before so i just wake up start the coffee pick it up go in the shower so within 15 wow you're one of those guys who lays out the clothes for the next day the night before yeah it's a new thing i'm doing wow it it really doesn't take that much to do it at night but in the morning it takes a lot of brain power to decide it really does it's so true yeah mm -hmm. and you feel like you're so far ahead when you've got the you've got the clothing laid out and the reason i ask how soon you do this is because i actually heard this on another podcast recently it was the Smartless podcast with uh, um, Jason Bateman and um, Will Arnett. And, and they were talking about the importance for them. Or One of them was saying, as soon as he wakes up, he splashes cold water on his face. And that somehow that engages you, you know, it, 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 it um, expedites the process of being with it, I guess, in the first thing in the morning. Right. So the cold shower thing is probably an extension of that. Is it supposed to be good for your body or something? They, they say it's good for inflammation, you know, but I don't know. I, more for me, it's more of a mental thing. Like you can do it. You can stand here. If, if I can control myself, then I can, you know, control a lot of things that happen around me because so many things are happening around us. Like, you know, we're going to talk about some of them, yeah. but all these things with the phone and the media and outside, you know, and, and it seems like we're, we're gathering all these data and we're, we we're always in this fight or flight mode. Yes. But sometimes it's unnecessary. We don't need to respond to everything that happens. You know, we don't need to respond to every bad thing that happens in the world, you know, so it's more of a self-control thing more than anything else. Where did you get the idea? Who taught you? Uh, it just developed, and I was just ready like for it. Like you woke up one day and said, I, now I'm going to walk and turn on cold water? I mean, Is it Wim Hof that is very po popular now these days? Hmm. Do you know about him? No. Those guys are crazy. They sit in an ice, ice oh, cold bath. Oh, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen that. That's crazy. They're in there for like 10 minutes, 30 minutes, and mm. they just sit. Like, I, 20 seconds is enough for me. Well, that's, your, that's where you're headed. Then you can calm yourself and be sure that you're controlling yourself. <laughs> <laughs> if that's how this helps that's you. That's what it is. You're right. Yes. Yeah, well, it's great. I mean, good for you. And then coffee, and then you've, your pre-planned outfit, and then you're, you, meet, you greet the day. Yeah, I greet the day, yeah. And I have, I have this thing that I use all the time. What is that? It's become a new Bible. It's just a whiteboard. Uh-huh. And in the mornings, I just write stuff. You know how they say you should have a journal? Yes. I've always had a fear of writing a journal with the fear of someday somebody's going to read it. Or did I mispronounce? With this, I write it and I just wipe it off. Mm. So my, my mind just like comes out with things. And I, even if I want to, 
yell at someone and mm-hmm. just I just go at it mm-hmm. and just wipe it off. Mm. What I was I was going to ask you what what are the kind of things that you would put in a journal that you don't want people to read? We all have secrets. <laughs> we all have good secrets. <laughs> Somebody once told me uh, this is like kind of a everyone has their public life, their mm-hmm. private life, mm-hmm. and then their secret life. Wow, exactly. Right. It's not even your private life, it's your secret life. Yeah. And you don't want to yeah. expose that. So that you you seem like a you're a very organized person. That you're you're yeah. somebody who's uh, do you get up early? Yeah, sometimes if I'm inspired by five five thirty, I'm up, but no no later than eight o'clock. That's quite a range. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, sometimes it's five, sometimes noon. I, uh, I I like to get up early. Uh, do do you no, no, five between five and eight? Five and you eight. know, if, if I like, it's just there. The fire is there. The project is there. I just get up at five. You know, otherwise by latest eight o'clock. You know, I mean, the, part of the reason I'm asking these things is because you've been playing this role. It's not like you haven't been a producer before or working with different musicians, but on the voice, you become this kind of. Um, and not to age you, I mean, I, you know, you, I, I don't, you, you're very young and we're around the same age. I, I, you look very young, but, but you almost become a parental figure, right? You're a, you're a mentor to these young musicians. Mm-hmm. So, so you, some of this is, I mean, one of the things when I started producing artists or, or talking to young artists that I, I had to teach them was that that rock and roll fantasy of getting wasted every night is actually, and, and waking up at two in the afternoon is actually not sustainable. If you want to actually a career in this business, you know, you have to kind of, um, it's a job. And, and anytime in my life I've in, interviewed these massive famous rock stars or something it's always a, a sobering education about how you know they usually have this routine of like i get up in the morning and i run and then i make sure i eat my healthy food and and they're not at all what you think in terms of that again that sort of fantasy that 1970s idea of let's get wasted and i don't know right. hookers and cocaine or whatever is is that right. d- did you have those kind of conversations with the young artists you were working with on the voice well, you know, you're right about my role being there. I did feel like they were calling me Aleja Chikiana. And it's like, you know, and, it, and it's and it's nice because you've you've kind of earned that through time and through age. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I did have that. You know, I did see the the rockers that that thought, you know, waking up lady, messy hair, you know, and you know that whole concept and then there's they're the ones that were organized and uh, treated it as a job treated as a contest i I think it's all good you know it's it's all it's how they want to perceive it how they want to play it how they want to remember that time you know i i had my moments that you know i was a rock star you know all the crazy stuff and and i'm glad i did it you know because now i i know what it is and i you know i get to be more alert, you know, if somebody, if I, you know, see somebody's, obviously, if you see people going the wrong direction, you warn them as, as, as good or as bad as, you know, they, mm-hmm. they might take it. But, you know, everybody's got their own life. Yeah, it, it was an amazing, it was an amazing feeling being on the show, you know, just working with them musically, they all had their ideas, they're all musical ideas, and they all had their dreams, you kind of like, give them what's the real thing the reality and some of them you watch let them figure it out because when somebody's not on on tv or 
they don't have that glamour, the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Once they once they get that, that's it. And then, you know, and you see that fire, they're just they can't wait to be on and then they think that's it, you know, mm-hmm. they have twenty followers, they want two thousand and, and they think once they reach ten thousand, oh my god, that's it. And then they get the ten and they're like you know, so and we all go to that dark spot. We all go fight the digits and the rankings, the man-made rankings. So it's nice, you know. I, I would I learned so much from all of them. How did you, you get know? involved in the Voice Persia? Oh, I always wanted to be part of a show because I thought I'd, I've done so many different things in my career. That's one thing I hadn't done. So I'd knocked on a couple of doors before with other talent shows, and they would just not open those doors wouldn't open and I was really bummed out. But this one, uh, I have a friend, a dear friend, Johan uh, Moberi from Sweden, that he called me three days before I, three days before the shooting started. And he said, we need help, get on the plane, get up, you know. So it was like a last minute thing. And and it made me realize that not every time that a door closes on you is a bad thing. So the prior TV shows that I'd applied for and I really wanted to do, the doors didn't open. Somebody didn't give me the job or, they, 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 you know, the, the amount wasn't right. It just didn't. Ha- and I was bummed out. Like, why doesn't this, doesn't mm. this door open? You know? Mm. But then now I think about it. I go, oh, had I been on those shows, I would have missed out on this one. And mm. this one came out good. It was a full-on production, The Voice. I mean, you know. So did you ever feel, I mean, I've, I have to be honest, I've never been a huge fan of, um, some of these talent shows, you know, where I think that they're less about artistry and more about artifice and they're kind of, you know, and, and it's a popularity contest and it's taking, it's taking music and turning it into this competition. And, and, um, uh, there's just a a lot of elements of it. I I haven't, I haven't been a fan of over the years, although the voice is one that feels different to me. It's always had musical people involved in it, uh, real musicians. And, and it seems like it's coming from a good place. Did you have any reservations about being part of something that isn't strictly about artistry? To be honest, I didn't know much about the show until I was in the plane. I started reading, like, what is this? The levels, there's five levels. Do you know about the show itself, the format? Yeah, I mean, I've watched this. You would know this better than me. When I was researching this interview for you, did you know that there's like 200 voices? There's every country. Cambodia has the voice Cambodia. And so I've seen the American one, I guess, uh, and watched it a number of times. But so I'm assuming the voice Persia, I mean, I just watched clips uh, preparing for this, but I'm assuming it's the same kind of format, right? Yeah, it's the same format. It's a, it's a franchise, so I mean, it's, they license NBC licenses from this company, and they have rules, they have coloring, everything's by you know, yes. by the book, you know, by its rules. So I didn't know much about the show until I started reading it about it, reading about it, and it's 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 a clever show because it's not only a show about the contestants; it's about the the judges. And it's the team that the judge picks on the first right, try. Right. Now they have to work with their artist, well, work uh, during the, the two, three months to kind of get them better. And uh, so it's it's a clever show. Honestly, it, it, at the end of the day, it's a show. Yeah. 
it's a show and things get edited things get and and it's not necessarily reality no it can't be it can't be the only reality reality is what's happening right now me and you hmm. the present moment is the only anything other than that nothing's reality but Ervin, i remember like hamid nikpay was on uh when he came on our show here two or two or three years ago and uh and i don't want to tell tell tales out of school i'm sure hamid would you know i, I i'm only telling you things that he actually said in the interview uh but <laughs> but you know at the time he was he had been on another kind of reality show contest thing uh and he was very down on the fact that he had done that i mean now of course he came and did the voice so but at the time he said you know i gained all of a sudden i have this million followers on instagram but most of these people don't even know my music they don't even care about that they just know me as the guy from tv you know and and right. even sometimes i put things of my music on and they go what's this and, you know and he was very right. frustrated by that experience now obviously he not frustrated enough to not want to join another TV show, which he did uh, with The Voice. Maybe he saw this as different, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know, the 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 superficiality that comes with just being on television in in general. Yeah, I think that's normal. You can't do anything about it, right? It's show business. It's it's um, um, it is what it is, right? Is it is it hard for you to be the coach and not playing on the field? Did you, were there times when you wanted to be the guy on stage rather than um, no. cheering in the sidelines? No. no, I didn't want to worry about my hair. This what did I said. What I, I was just there. I loved it. I was working fourteen, fifteen hour days, and I loved it. And I, there was hundred contestants, you know, and they all have their songs. They all have their. They all want your attention. They all want to ask you something they all want to suggest something and you're just getting all this information you know calculating and spitting it out it was mainly so as you said earlier on i i, I grew up playing the organ in church and i would bring uh, we would in church it's everything's volunteer including yourself so you learn how to if someone says hey i want to sing you can't turn them down but you come and you say okay what let's see what you're good at hmm. what what and then you kind of so i learned that over the years when i was especially when i was 14 13. so at the show it was kind of reminding the artists what they're good at hmm. not telling them you're not good at this go work on this it's like no you're good at this and you're good at reminding them what they're good at. Now you stand, that's your line. You're good at that. Just do that. Don't imitate me. Don't imitate anybody else. You know, just be you. So it was kind of reminding people what they're good at. And the ones that are that trusted what they were good at and they trusted my word, they, you know, they, they just stood there, you know. I I think that the entire show is part is is like a model of life, of mm. what's happening around us. You know, you need your connections. You need to be nice to people that you that are working for you mm -hmm. and working with you. You know, if if a, if a if a contestant is is demanding stuff from me, is my my attitude towards them naturally speaking will be much different. Mm. And somebody is that very says very nice. You know, is obviously such is life, yeah. right? So. I think for most of them, for the ones that were just one-sided, I need to go on stage, I need to get, you know, I just need to, 
you know, I just need to sing. I need to win, you know. They didn't they didn't even enjoy themselves because it was just all about the end. It was mm. not the journey. But the ones that since day one, they had a smile. They were already happy where they were. It had they been eliminated the next day, they were just excited. They were they were thankful for that opportunity. Those were the real winners, you know. I mean, one, he, was, he deserved to win, yeah. but the real winners were the ones that took home memories. Well, it's a good segue. I was going to ask you about what you've learned about where the level of ability and talent is in in Iranian music these days. I mean, you've you've kind of seen it all over the last few decades from both inside and outside of the Iranian music industry in as much as we could even call it that. I mean, there was there was years there where it was kind of a wasteland, you know, and uh, with, notwithstanding some stuff happening in L.A. Um, and then there's been this growth of different kinds of genres of music and uh, you start to see there's Persian hip hop and there's rock bands coming out and there's obviously a fertile Per Iranian pop uh, industry. I was watching this Persian voice. I was blown away by some of your contestants. I mean, Aido Rastgu is just phenomenal. I can't believe how good this young woman is. Uh, what is your sense of the wealth of talent you have observed in the Iranian diaspora today? So I think we had uh, about 2,000 submissions from those 2,000 submissions, 100 were picked. Obviously, for in Iran, you have a pool of 90 from, from 90 people, 90 million people. Now, what is the diaspora? Is it 7, 8, 10, yeah. 10 million? And then plus, you have all these visa restrictions. All So you are you just make the best of whatever you, you, you can. Thanks to technology, Brawl everybody in Iran, and doesn't matter where you're in the world, you you're exposed to the good bands, you're exposed to the smile, you're exposed to the radiates, you're exposed to anything that you want, you know anything. And there's a ton of material out there, so the ears have become, uh, you know, trained and open to to the song, to this style of singing, like all that new uh, hip hop and R and B. Mm. I, I don't even know what to call it. I don't mm. even know what the name is. Soul or something. Yeah. Yeah. The melodies are amazing. Yeah. The way they're, you know, the way they they break the words in half. Something that maybe 10 years ago a lyricist would say, "Oh, you cannot you cannot accent the word like that. You know, it needs to be proper." You know? This younger generation is saying, "No. I'm going to break the word." And yeah. I'm by breaking the 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 rhythm of the word, I'm going to give it two meanings. <laughs> They're good at that. So the mind is definitely uh, evolved. You know, there are, the Iranian community has evolved. That's what you asked, right? Yeah. I mean, the talent level of music seems to be at a different level from where it would have been, say, 20 years ago in the global yeah. Iranian community, you know? Yeah. Um, the other thing I thought I really liked about the show, or, or I, I think this is the case, is there's no real manipulation or or of of the of what we're hearing right i mean there's there's so much now um in terms of the, the way people record there's so much pitch shifting or um computer generated stuff that you you really actually don't know what the person would sound like if they were in your right. room playing with an acoustic guitar and singing you know um right. but on the voice you kind of get a sense that these kids could really sing and and they're actually yeah. really talented in terms of what they're doing yeah yeah 
for sure. You know, I think, I mean, if I don't know what editing means, but now everything's become so digitized, you know, that you can give that sense of grandness through mix and, uh, you know, but yeah, I mean, the the, the band was e- excellent and the singers, I mean, you can tell it's them singing, you know. It's not an AI singing. Right, <laughs> right. The AI will be singing. What did you most learn by uh, working on The Voice? I learned I the characters of these kids because we had all sorts of characters. We had the Jedi character, we had the... <laughs> playful characters we had the ones that just happy we had the ones that were miserable all the time we had the ones that were always demanding and i it was like a good pool of society that it was just all in front of me you know and it was it was interesting because i saw a part of myself or i saw every individual reminded me of somebody that maybe i had been in the past or somebody i'd met so it was more of a Zen moment for me, even though we were working. Da, 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 da. But what I learned most is kind of working with with NBC, with Mira, you know, working with NM Pro, the the production, uh, with Soroush, our producer. Just learning how to like my my role, official role, as musical director. But it was more than that, you know, because you spend time with the artists, you know. Mm. You spend time with all these contestants and you spend, you see what they want, what they want to sing, what they think they want to sing. So it was more of a communication, kind of seeing myself in each one of these people. Are there relationships that are going to continue? Are you producing any of of these people's albums now? Or is is that kind of those conversations happening? Um... Yeah, there's some there's some things. <laughs> that sounds like to be yes. Honest, well, to be honest, I I I'm a little hesitant to be because when it happened, all my producer friends they're like, "Oh my god, you know what's going on in this show? You know who's good? Go pick them up, go work with them. You right. have a 6-7 right. month advance, you know. Right. They love you. They're calling you Arai Khachikira. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I know that being famous, uh, uh, to be honest, I'm I'm waiting for. I have my eyes. I, I'm in touch with all of them, but I honestly have. So I, I, I'm waiting for this hype to kind of calm down. Right on. Because in the past, I've worked with people that are at the at the height, you know, or just you see them and you see them changing right in front of your mm. eyes. And there's nothing more hurtful is than than giving to somebody that sees themselves taking themselves so seriously. <laughs> and no matter what you give them, it's this. So I'm waiting, and it's a natural thing. I did it too. I've done it. I, I, I've done this to somebody else. Mm. And I was ignored, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> It's not bad, you know. It's it's not you know. It was just because I was on TV, so what? So I'm waiting for some of them to realize that the so what. That's such a that's such a, uh, if you'll excuse the term, mature way of approaching this. I really appreciate that. 
ギリギリ。あれ、and um, yeah. When when did you guys shoot? You shot that last year, right? Exactly this time of year. This time ago. last year. So obviously there was this big. Um, I mean, you know, we we have to talk a little bit about the the uprising and the revolution that that uh, started after the killing of Masai Amini. There were certainly months. There was a period after that where there was no appetite for. I mean, people were even saying don't play concerts, etc. They would not have been an, an appetite for the voice to be released. By the time that the network or that people started talking about, okay, we're going to put this out in early in 2023, were, were you concerned that this may be seen as somehow uh, disrespectful or inopportune to be putting this out at a time when there's, you know, kids dying in Iran, etc.? For sure, you know, um you know, the show has a lot of Gerti Bazit in it, you know. You know, it's, it's playful, right? You know, not in a bad bad way, you know. It's, it's playful. It's a show. You know? So when that happened in Iran, it was, it was no-brainer that it needs to wait, you know. And even when it was released just now, like, so we had some young artists like Ida mm -hmm. and a couple of other ones. And these girls, at that age, they really grow so they look different from where they were a year ago and people change you know people right, get right. maybe thinner you know so it, it was a it was a challenging obviously NBC had to decide make the decision when they want to release it you know but it was a do or die and i think any later would have been bad and uh just like everything in life like this the way the moon and the the sun the earth everything just has its own timing and so it had to be happen like this, mm -hmm. you know. Of course, things had to be adjusted, you know, considering what happened in Iran. Did anybody come at you? I mean, there were, I saw on social media there were some people who were not happy, uh, although then, of course, it became this hit show. So, I mean, was there ever a point where you kind of went, oh, my God, this is going to be uh, this is going to be rough. I'm going to have to deal with some stormy waters here with this coming out. No, yeah, I, we all announced something in our own way, you know, and then my, my thing was, hey, like, it's something we did for the community for grateful for the opportunity you know grateful for the voice to wanting to do something for iran you know culture you know we all have our own ways of fighting mm. i i'm not a politician i cannot go on stage and fight but i can go on the voice and i can make make the, my iranian artists sound better that's my job i don't want to go stand up behind a podium and uh Magbarin, i'm not that guy I don't know how to be that guy, mm. but somebody is, you know? So, and I think we all have our parts in this place. And my part was to give to the show. And yeah, so it's just something we've done on our show and I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of our Iranian artists. And there it is. Here's the show, you know? How did the uprising, I don't want to put it in the past tense as if it's not still happening, but, but how has the last six or seven months affected you i remember the last interview we did that the full one that we did of your of your sort of life story and you talking about how much you 
loved those when you were very, very young and, and it was before the revolution and, and you had a taste of the cultural diversity and ethno diversity of, of Tehran and Iran at the time and, and the heartbreak of that being a different place over the last 44 years, 43 years. Um, how, how did you personally respond when you saw the level of activity around uh, wanting to create change in Iran, both from the young, the, first of all, the young women, but the young boys in, in Iran on the front lines, but also in the diaspora? First of all, I'm amazed at your memory. That's amazing. That you don't... Um, so, you know, it, it, it is heartbreaking. I think all of us just went through this... I think we were all stuck to the phone, right, for day and night. Um, somehow feeling obligated to post, to write, to stay, tell tell people how we feel. I think it was too intense. And a lot of my friends, a lot of my artist friends, when I would talk to them, they were sick. Hmm. A couple of my artist friends, they went to the emergency because it was just too much. Yeah. Our brain is not supposed to digest all that information that we go and it's just of course we're gonna have anxiety so that part is unhealthy if if my if my nation or if my country expects me to be unhealthy but to be posting my opinion (laughs) that's wrong you know so i think there came a time that everybody had to step back because all of a sudden it was just like, oh, let's write a song, let's do this, let's do this, let's yes. that, 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 that. And it was like, day, day and night was about the misery that is happening in Iran. And everybody has their opinion. You should sue this, you're the left, you're the right, you're the center, you're the, you know, and it's like, wow, why don't we all just find what we're good at? Again, How what our fight is, mm. you know, our individual fight, rather than telling each other, you know, what to do. But at the same time, the person that is telling others what to do, they also have their place. That is their that is their place, right? So it's it's all good, whichever way it is. Yeah, I think the idea of finding your lane in terms of what you're, how you can contribute, is a great way to put it. Uh, yeah, especially if you see that what you're doing can can make a difference. Although I am one of those people who thinks that uh, over the last five or six months, if you were completely silent. Um, that you're not helping, <laughs> you know, uh, not yeah, you, yeah. but if somebody remained, especially somebody who has a public platform, just completely stayed yeah. out of it and didn't join yeah, any yeah. protest anytime or didn't say anything, I I, I would kind of go, hmm, what, uh, you know, wh- how are you helping, you know? Yeah. Um, do, you did that, uh, you you did a version of um, a, a sort of collaboration with the Shervin's song, Bad Yeah, where you play the guitar, it was, I actually talked about it on our show. I don't know if you heard this, but just two or three months ago or four months ago, whenever you did it, because it was one of my favorite um, things that, that people had done with that song. Because for me, that song is so sacrosanct in terms of how the genius of it. I mean, it happens to be, I don't think he wrote it thinking I'm writing a global hit, you know, but um, just the timing of it, the vulnerability of his voice, even the production, the the repetition, everything about it is so genius. And I, I'm not someone who has as much enjoyed all of the different versions of it that have been put out there where people take it and change the lyrics and do whatever, you know. Um, so what I liked about your version was that you, 
you kept the sort of integrity of Shervin doing the song and you kind of just joined them. Um, Maral Mohammadi also did a version of that where she played the cello along with the, the song. And I, I appreciated that. Tell me about that decision to want to bring the lead guitar to that song. Well, one thing I, I want to say about Shervin, everybody from the outside probably says, oh, look at this guy. He he won a Grammy with one song. Hmm. Wow. My friend, he if you if you follow his work, he's he's written a lot of songs. He's written songs about most random things. He's written a song about his friend, I think Ali, that it keeps failing his driver's license test. <laughs> That's genius. When he was writing that song, he was not thinking, oh, one day I'm gonna win a win a Grammy. He was just ready. Right. He was just ready. I speak to a lot of these new artists now, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we want to bring awareness to the to the American and the Iranian community." Like, like, you know, Shermin did. We want to. Re- no, you want to be a hero. <laughs> you want to be a hero. <laughs> How convenient! <laughs> How convenient! Go do your work. Go live the journey, and if it's the time for you to be the hero, you will be a hero. Yeah, that When when he wrote that song, like you just said, it was genius. The lyrics, the way, the melody, the simplicity—it was yeah. brilliant. Yeah. So when he came out, I was even like, even oh. the lo-fi video, like it's not yeah. a fancy; it's just him sitting there. I mean, it's it's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So you know, when when I heard the first time I heard the song, like many of us were like, "Wow!" So you're hooked on it, and then I think it was three days, two days later that I heard, and it's been arrested, and I got sick. Because I, I, I locked myself in the house for three days. And I, I didn't have any desire to go out. I, I had no desire to do anything. I just stayed in. I downloaded his video and I started playing with the song. I started adding rhythm, guitar. You know, I, I, I just played with him. Just I was like, oh, I wish mm-hmm. if he was in my studio, I'd be playing the mm-hmm. song with him. So I started editing this and that. And it became a, a new arrangement. Like I did my arrangement of his song, mm. of his beautiful song. Do you know him, by the way? Did Did, did you know him from your travels to Iran? No, no, not at all. But you know, he reached out, and he, you know, it was such an honor for me. You know, it's, it's a great artist. You mm. know, somebody that I didn't know. And uh, so yeah, we're we're in touch. You know, it's uh, I'm so happy for him, and I'm I'm honored that I. I I was able to do something on top of his work that you could even like or other people could like. You know, all these, uh, it's had like over 9 million or 8 million yeah. views on Instagram. And I've spent so many times on my own song production, go <laughs> jump from the building, go in the water, go guitar solo, this, this the drums. No, we don't want to crash on the right side. No, we want to crash on the left side. Oh my God, the mix, the bass. Oh, I don't like the tone. <laughs> Screw all of that. You got like a thousand views, and then you got nine million. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't like my reverb. <laughs> Take your reverb. <laughs> you know. Um, do you, Do you know any of the other musicians who've been implicated in this? Uh, these horrible last few months. I mean, do you know Tumaj by, personally by chance, or anybody else? I don't know him personally, but. I can't believe he's in jail. I mean, I can't. I, it breaks my heart that he's still in there. But yeah. 
what do we do? What do I do? Well, I mean, you can believe he's in jail because you've been, um, I mean, more specifically when it comes to women and being uh, women being un, un, unable to, to, to live their best lives as musicians and singers in Iran, you've been at the forefront of doing something called the Let Her Sing series. And before I let you go, I have to ask you about something you're doing this weekend in Los Angeles. This is, it, it reminds me of the Let Her Sing series, but it's called Zen Voices of Freedom. It's a concert you're planning for Los Angeles. Tell us about this. So, you know, I, I, I've let her sing like you said it's it's a show that I, i've been a part of musical director producer in that happens in the bay area in san francisco there are a lot more iranians in la and i always wanted to kind of not not do a similar thing but a another version of that you know in let her sing we have 10 female singers that come from all over the world um it's a global thing uh, but when I, I discussed this with Fathering Foundation and the Alex Theater, we just thought that it's a good time to, uh, as a result of things that are happening in Iran, to do Zan. And uh, I brought my stage partner, Niaz Nawab, uh, Golazin from Houston, she's coming, and, uh, and Gelar Shaybani, whom you mentioned earlier. And th- these are musicians that I like. You know, I we handpicked them, you know, uh, and we're excited about it. Yeah, so it's happening this Sunday at the Alex Theater in Glendale, which is my own town. And I walk there. I love it. <laughs> you know? Who knew? A Persian in Glendale. I've never I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> right? So the other day, I went for a hike yesterday. And I just randomly, somebody was coming across, you know, on the other side opposite me. And I, and he said, hello. And I just said, Barabzis, like in Armenian. Because Glendale is a lot of Armenians. And he's like, oh, Barabzis. You know, so when you sneeze here, people tell you, bless you in, in Armenian, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. I love it. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's great to see you, and you seem to be in very good spirits. You, As I said, uh, you look great. Are you uh, are you writing these days? I mean, after the cold shower and the coffee and the freshly <laughs> pressed clothes, um, are, is there a new, a, a new Air Vin project coming anytime soon? Yeah, I have a collaborative work with Paymona Aslani. Mm. A very good producer. He's been producing Sogan's work for the past, God knows, seven, eight years, if not more. Um, I got together with him last summer, and uh, he's he's good. You know, he's you know he's younger than me. You know, those younger guys. You know, they, they have all these plugins. Da, 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 open it. You know, you're just like uh, open a D minor. You know, so. <laughs> We worked well together. I'm excited. So I have a collaborative pro- uh, project with him. And uh, I have a couple of other other ones that are I'm excited about. They're in my hard drive. They're just being built. You know, I have something with Mina Deris. I don't know if you know her. Mm, so the name is familiar. Yeah. Where do I know her? Yeah. She's uh, curly hair. She sings in Arabic and Persian okay. in Farsi. Yeah. So, you know, there's some things here and there, you know, uh, I have some stuff with Niaz, you know, maybe you and I, last time we talked about doing something. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the, the invitation. Once you're finished flying around, uh, the, doing the voice and taking cold showers. And I mean, you're, you're busy, you know, and let me, uh, let me ask you though, when you, when you write these days, do you, if, 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 if I said, uh, Hey, uh, Hey, Erwin, you know, take today and and write a song. Would you would you walk towards the piano or the guitar? What do you write on these days? 
if it's something rhythmic, I start with the guitar because there's even though if you don't have the chords, you can mute and right. kind of right. keep it going. If it's something that it's a harmony idea, I have obviously I sit behind the piano. Um, Jesus, yeah. you're so diplomatic. Even that question, you came down the middle between the. You didn't want to favor the piano or the guitar. You're really good at this. <laughs> I've heard that before, and I, I can't get you to say something offensive. You can't even offend the guitar by picking the piano. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's my favorite. My favorite is is just pads, oh. and where there's no rhythm and there's nothing, it's just you know, I, I, my, that's my favorite. So I hate the guitar. You you want me to burn my guitar here to change your mind? Yep, I yeah. do actually. That would be good. Oh, no. We get some clicks. <laughs> we're not going to get your nine million clicks but we'll get more than the fancy videos you know uh so um it's always a pleasure to see you my friend congratulations on uh all that you've um, been involved in uh of, of late i look forward to the new music and and um good luck with this uh, big show in los angeles if, um if anybody can if people can still get tickets i hope uh if if they can it's in los angeles at the, at the alex theater where is it mm -hmm. that's in glendale yeah and uh, the Zen Voices of Freedom concert uh, this weekend in Los Angeles. Erwin John, um, it's always a pleasure to see you. Merci. Thank you so much. Thanks to your team. You know, uh, I wrote their names, but maybe they don't want to be mentioned. But thank you so much, guys. Uh, God bless you. You guys are doing 200. What is this? 200 and what? Yes, it's show 255 you're on here. Oh, my God. Is that good? Oh, that's amazing has the voice done 255 episodes yet you see but you don't come and be the musical director for us do you you go you run off to stockholm i'm ready <laughs> tell me when let's do it let's do it <laughs> hey man don't Good don't tempt, you. thanks so much I, you, by yeah. the way you, we need you in toronto it's been a while come 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 visit yeah. us possibly summertime all right yeah yeah would you come on stage with us? 100%. I'll play drums. I'll play yeah. drums. I'll do something. 100%. Yeah, that would be cool. 100%. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you so much again. Thanks, brother. Khodafis. Merci. Merci. Too many more. Cheers. Bye-bye. This is Rook, episode 255, and my next guest is an Iranian-American political scientist who has as his focus Iran's security and political issues. Behnam Ben Taleblu is a senior fellow at FDD, that's the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in Washington, D.C. Behnam got his master's degree in international relations from the University of Chicago. His area of expertise includes a vast range of Iran-related issues such as the IRGC, 
uh, sanctions, ballistic missiles, and nuclear non-proliferation. He frequently contributes to leading international media outlets, including BBC News, Fox News, CBS News. His analysis has been quoted in prestigious publications such as the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, and the Associated Press. He's also testified before the U.S. Congress and the Canadian Parliament and has provided testimony to the British House of Commons. Right now, Behnam Ben Taleblu joins me from Washington, D.C. today. Hello, sir. Pleasure to be with you, Gian. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. I'll try to live up to it. Well, it's, it's good to have you on the program. I, I, I know you as a policy expert, and I, I'm looking forward to... Um, getting you to shed some light on some issues that we've uh, that we hear about, but we often don't know the details of. I thought as a general focus for this interview, I wanted to pursue the question of what is the key to changing Western policy on Iran? How how do we we know what the U.S. policy, the EU policy has been? Can that change? And if so, what is going to change it? So let me start off with the the lay of the land where you're sitting from your vantage point in the States and in Washington, D.C. We're two years into the Biden administration in America. How is the Biden admin seeing the Iran issue right now? Is its Iran policy involving anything other than the resuscitation of the nuclear deal we hear about? Well, you know, I didn't want to have to begin the conversation on a, on a bit of a negative point or a bit of a pessimistic point, but I'm afraid uh, that question uh, requires an honest answer. And, you know, we're about two years into what potentially could be a four-year term for this administration or potentially an eight-year term for a Democratic administration uh, if Biden or someone else is reelected. Ultimately, uh, since the advent of the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, there have been multiple communities of concern here within the United States that looked at the Iran issue uh, through different lenses, and I'll just mention four of them briefly that have been, in my view, irreparably shattered or changed or fragmented or or rendered into more of a mosaic uh, on Iran issue when there was much more consensus prior to 2015 on how to look at the threat, how to address the threat. Uh, and in the kind of ethnic politics world, it was obviously the Iranian-American community and the Jewish-American community. And in the technical world or the policy world, it was the arms control slash non-proliferation community uh, and the sanctions and the financial community. And those four communities have kind of been unable to get much of their footing back cohesively. Obviously, no community is a monolith to begin with, but the JCPOA really created divides within each of these communities. And people's strong preferences today, pro-deal, anti-deal, behavior change, regime change, in many ways is not born of the 2015 deal, but reflects so much of the politics and policy drama and debates since 2015. And so Biden and his administration are not born in a political vacuum. They inherit this 2015 deal or the U.S. policy on it through, you know, Democratic Party dogma, which is to do the opposite of your predecessor, Trump did the opposite of his predecessor. There's this long trend in post-Cold War American politics where you campaign on doing the opposite of your predecessor, and you actually do that in the foreign policy space. Um, you know, Biden continues to see the Iran issue through the nuclear lens. So let me slow you down. 
because <laughs> sure. you you're saying a lot and there's there's a lot to unpack there so it sounds like first of all to to uh, crudely simplify all of what you've just said it sounds like you're saying uh, actually current policy doesn't involve much more than than hoping to or working on the resuscitation of the nuclear deal is that correct and and if that is correct then to use your you know the background you just gave us it feels like I don't know if this is true, but it feels like then the Biden administration is stuck in 2015 in a sense because um, because in 2023, even of the groups that you, interest groups that you mentioned, it's hard for me to find Iranian based cultural or political or organized groups that support the JCPOA. I mean, are there any? Um, listen, there's a shift in the landscape, not just in America, but in Iranian and diaspora and civic society groups abroad, as you know better than I. In Europe, in Canada, even when you unpack Europe, UK versus EU and Australia, the very interesting things about all of those jurisdictions is those are jurisdictions where the parliament in Canada, in the UK, in the EU, in Australia, is actually pushing uh, the foreign ministry in all of those areas to sanction the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization. And they're doing so not exclusively, but mostly due to political pressure they face from diaspora Iranians and other uh, and others in each community trying to get each of these respective countries, each of these respective places to look at the Iran issue beyond the JCPOA. And this is a really important moment for the diaspora community because they are so united uh, in their view and it's a very problematic uh, time in history for policymakers, particularly Western policymakers, because they remain so handcuffed to a different, older, and outdated view. So sadly, the short answer to your question is yes. Right. Uh, they remain kind of mostly centered on the nuclear deal. Now, depending on who you talk to, they'll spin it a different way. They'll talk about the number of human rights sanctions or the political interest right. in countering Iran drones or the money spent on you know countering Iran's security architecture in the region but the 800 pound gorilla in the room remains that well actually uh, you mentioned Europe I mean Europe has also demonstrated a dogged attachment to the JCPOA um, and to be clear while many Iranians around the world oppose the nuclear deal because we see it as a lifeline for the current regime in Iran it's not certain, I guess, that such a deal would actually prevent Iran's growing role as a global threat. Can can you put into simple terms what the Western obsession with the JCPOA is, whether it's the United States or, or Europe? Is it actually about security in the region? So I will do my best to condense it down into a couple of drivers, particularly the European drivers. There is a philosophical interest. There is a political interest. There is a security interest, and there is an economic or mercantilist interest. And you know these four. Uh, you know, I'd love it to be three, so that way I could say it's an unholy trinity. But <laughs> these four uh, basically define this European obsession, particularly the EU obsession. Look at Brussels in particular on this, with seeing things through the JCPOA lens. Okay. Number one, philosophical. The 500,000 for philosophy of liberalism that you can adjudicate conflicts through engagement and dialogue and diplomacy right. rather than violence. Right. Let's sit down and talk it out. Right. Right. Exactly. Rather well, than listen to what Khamenei is saying, they're putting words in Khamenei's mouth or trying to cover their ears. So this is one. Right. Two is, is politics. Which, by the way, is 
is a logical and and fair approach that I, oh, I, I think absolutely. anybody would would appreciate. Except we're forty four years into realizing that negotiating with this regime doesn't work, right? So, um, so that's why the, the community is a little. The Iranian diaspora would be a little frustrated at, at this point with the idea of let's just sit down and have a have tea with Khamenei and maybe we could make sense of this. Yeah, if you if you have tea with one guy or you break pest there with another guy. Uh, you know, every time there's a new government in the EU and the UK and the US, we relive an experiment that Iranian society has already yes. largely understood and put a checkbox through. Yes. So this is the kind of this revolving door of, of trying to use diplomacy only or exclusively. So that, that's philosophy. Two is politics. And this is not a knock on the EU, but in terms of EU foreign policy diplomatic achievements, there haven't been that many and there haven't been that of been shared continuously across what you call the external action service in Brussels. So you've had different EU foreign policy chiefs over time. They almost all see the Iran nuclear issue, given that many European states, even prior to the advent of the deal, were negotiating with Iran on this. They almost all see it the same way. So the JCPOA was a major political win for this European philosophical approach. And they're looking to safeguard that win. And when the US left it in 2018, this was a highly emotive, highly politically charged, highly personalized sure. deal. And so they want to protect that. So there's so much about protecting the political brand. So philosophy, politics. Three is, is security. Um, you know, the Europeans, and particularly European states, always rank order things. And many states do, in fact, should do this. But interest, time, resources. And they simply have always had a wedding cake-like approach to the Iran problem. They'll sometimes talk tough on the human rights issue. They'll occasionally do things like throw out Iranian ambassadors when there's terrorism on European soil. Right, right. They'll, uh, there was even a time in history in 2012, 2013, when there were more EU designations on Iran than America. They'll even do things like that. But they will continue to, for purposes of security, say that a nuclear Iran will make things much harder. So if you worry about this architecture of threat, you know, treating it like a wedding cake, they will always focus on that top layer of the wedding right, cake, right. the nuclear issue. So for security issue reasons, they will say that nonproliferation must come first. Right. And bureaucratically, they're structured to think that way. And then finally, mercantilism. For many years pre-nuclear deal, uh, the Iranian government used to go shopping across Europe, uh, Central and Eastern Europe in particular. Uh, even Ukraine now is a place that they've gone shopping uh, in Ukraine in the past is a place that they've gone shopping uh, for things like land attack cruise missiles and, you know, military component parts. Uh, the regime has always treated Europe as a place to procure things they could obviously never get from America. And on the European side, although they were cognizant of this threat, they were also looking to make a buck or looking to make a euro. And there's lots of small and medium enterprises that don't always do business with America but do do business with lots of emerging markets. And so you tie together with that with oil, and there becomes an outside yeah. financial interest. Yeah. So these four forces. That, the, the, the last one is pretty naked. And I mean, there's, you know, uh, deals to be done, we, even if it's with the devil that we're on one side of our mouth saying, you know, stop with the human rights abuses, we'll make those deals with this. So we that, that one no, is going to come as no surprise to anyone, although full marks for using the word mercantilism in the 21st century. <laughs> uh, Thank you. you you've added yourself. You, you, you've added yourself as a policy nerd. Uh, um, 
can I just go back to security though? Because my question was to a certain extent, and I look at I know that it's probably a, a bit of a it's it's folly to bring on somebody who's a stated um, policy analyst who's takes who opposes the JCPOA to even ask you a question like this. But I mean, if you were trying to be as objective as you can, is there any evidence that a nuclear deal would actually lead to a safer world? I mean, that's my question. I mean, because that's what they that's at the forefront, right? They go, whoa, Iran nuclear threat. Better do this deal. Yeah, sure, it'll help. Maybe the, it'll put some money in the coffers of the regime, but at least we'll have a safer region. Is there evidence to show that that would actually be the case under the JCPOA? So that's why the details always matter. There's the question of a deal versus this deal or the JCPOA or anything predicated on the JCPOA. Lest we forget, prior to that deal, there were five UN Security Council resolutions trying to get Iran to not enrich uranium on its own soil. That was a major giveaway of the deal. That's one of the main things that we say over time will pave the pathway for Iran to you know, go back and resurrect and restore a nuclear threat and be able to dangle that over us at a time of its own choosing. So European interest here in a deal like the JCPOA is not akin to solving the problem in their view, right? They're willing to make a deal with the devil not to forever solve the nuclear problem because they're not destroying nuclear sites. They're not destroying centrifuges. They're putting centrifuges, these machines that spin uranium, they're putting them into storage. That's the that's the thing. So the Europeans have been willing to do a deal with the devil uh, to kick the can down the road. And sometimes mm. that may be necessary in foreign policy. My qualm with the deal is that it doesn't even accomplish its stated goals quite well. Because there's one thing to say that, yeah, they may fund terrorism and they may have more money to repress at home and be aggressive abroad. Mm -hmm. And for the past 10 plus years, there's ample evidence that they've done sure. that. Yeah. The problem is you're not even solving the main stated thing, which is the nuclear issue. You're kicking the can down the road. And one reason why, since Trump left the deal, the Iranians have been able to escalate so far mm -hmm. and so much. You know, there's a story that weapons-grade uranium is considered 90% purity. The Iranians recently flirted with 84%. That's a hop, skip, and a jump. These guys are almost there. These things are not accidents. Um, there's a reason they've been able to scale up so fast. But under your own, under that analysis then, of the kicking it down the road, wouldn't the argument then be, well, we, we put this off, we make sure that they can't build the, you know, the nuclear warheads for now, and we hope and expect that there'll be some kind of regime change in the meantime, and then we can play ball with the next one. That could have been an argument if you were willing to take a deal and use that as a basis for a more aggressive policy dealing with non-nuclear threats like missiles, drones, terrorism, as well as do more to help the Iranian people achieve that end. But the problem was once that deal came on board, it came. the policy became, whether on this side of the Atlantic or that side, not doing any of those things mm. for the explicit purposes of safeguarding that deal, not sacrificing anything lest it affect that sacred altar. Right. And over time, you see cold punches and you know, deal making in any capital, particularly Western capitals that have norms like contract sanctity, they tend to take on a life of their own. And there's always deal proponents and deal defenders. You know, think of the saga of Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations now. Think of the way that architects, policy debates, academic debates and government debates creates a life in a constituency of its own. And that's precisely what the JCPOA did. 
Now, what many people who helped negotiate that deal will probably tell you in private is that they agree with you on the human rights issue, the drone issue, the missile issue, and they would like to address those, you know, X minus five years, eight years, six right. years down right. the line. But my pushback to them is if you use the bulk of your non-military leverage, basically the oil sanctions and associated economic penalties, just to get a nuclear deal that took so long to get, and all you managed to do was kick the can down the road, what leverage do you have to go after the missiles, right, the human rights right. stuff, the drones, the terrorism? Right. You have none. And in fact, you lose leverage over time. All right. And, and again, if there was a time when putting billions back into the Iranian economy um, and helping Iranians, uh, if there was a time when we, we, we could have seen that as something positive because uh, there's this this regime can be reformed and and can change and uh, I mean we've you know that ship has sailed for almost everybody in the uh, Iranian yeah. community both inside and outside of Iran except for a couple of Iranian American uh, lobby groups but but uh, so so it, it just doesn't make any sense so we go back to that first question that that I suggested I wanted to pursue in this in this chat which is what is the key to changing western policy in Iran how, how do we how, on Iran how do we get the Biden administration or the EU or whomever to actually rethink this and you've given a couple of um, suggestions of what you think will shift the ground I saw your talk at uh, the Nufti a couple of weeks ago um, and one of the things you've said is that events inside Iran can play a role in changing U.S. focus and policy. Uh, that would be, for example, greater crackdowns by the regime, even more brutality, more people in the streets, for example. I wanted to actually push back on that because, um, I mean, if killing children and poisoning schoolgirls hasn't been enough, what kind of events would actually move the dial uh, inside from inside Iran? Well, God forbid we ever have to consider in real material terms what that looks like if there's a Syria-type situation or a Libya-type situation inside Iran. Um, but the reality of the situation is it can always get worse. This is the Middle East, meaning exogenous shocks can always produce something worse than what you almost always expect. Um, and the Biden administration or whatever administration is going to have to deal with the or would have to deal with the policy consequences of that. For instance, you've had some Iranian migration due to the wars of the Middle East. Imagine if you have a hell of a lot more migration due to a collapse of central authority or a civil war type mm. scenario or a, or a multi-state insurgency type scenario inside of Iran. That's just the tip of the iceberg exploring this kind of debate. Another is as the regime may realize it loses its grip, it may turn some of its nuclear infrastructure into an AQ con on steroids and the administration will, or this or any other administration may have to consider uh, what do you do then? How do you stop, uh, you know, uh, the regime which is falling from selling some of its most critical infrastructure to the likes of a terror network or whatever? And that bas basically the point is not just the human rights side, but other material things, too. The human rights side will create the political pressure uh, to do something about it, to marry your rhetoric, which has been good on this issue, with the reality. Mm. That coupled with the security situation, which when there's a human rights crisis means the security situation is always going to get worse, not better, serves as a forcing function. So let me go back to this story that came out in Axios a few days ago, just as an illustrative example. Uh, why this story is so important, basically the story is that starting in January, the administration here in Washington 
began to share the idea of a less for less or a freeze for freeze deal, something that floated in the past several times with the Europeans and even with the Russians to try to beg the Iranians to do even less than the JCPOA. This is their level of desperation for a deal. They'll take even like a quarter of it. But they re-upped this again in January with the Europeans. So when Iran is enriching to 84%, when Iran has weaponized what you and I probably call the injustice system of their judicial sector against innocent Iranians, putting thousands behind bars, doing things we know they do behind bars, like rape and torture and forced confessions and everything like that. And on top of that, uh, Iran sends more drones to Russia and the administration still, of course, uh, is interested in this deal. You need to have exogenous shocks come about that shake them of this. You need to basically, in some ways, shame them. Uh, that's precisely what I believe Vahid Beheshti has been trying, has been yeah. so good at yeah. in getting Western, in particular British policymakers, to feel, which is that how can you do this as X Y Z is going on? Well, that, that's so, a that's a good segue because your two prescriptions were what happens inside Iran can shift things in terms of Western policy. The other part was what happens outside, and you've said that that ad advocacy in the diaspora can make a difference in U.S. policy or in the EU. Again, I mean, the, the issue with that is that Biden administration, Nauru's garden parties uh, aside, I, I'm not sure that helped. Sadly, but, I, sadly, I did not get an invitation to that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you your opinion on that, but it, it probably doesn't matter at this point. Um, but to, to me, that's that, that kind of engagement is a problem because then the administration can point and say, well, look, we've had all these people here and, you know, they seem to be, Fine, they came and and so so. What's the what's the big issue? But but in terms of what the diaspora can do, it has been heartbreaking to to see. I mean, even here in Canada, you know, we've got um, our prime minister walking alongside demonstrators, but not shifting the goalposts on on putting the IRGC on the terrorist list. That hasn't happened in in Europe. The the Swedish, I think, it was the foreign minister who said, you know, putting the IRGC on the terrorist list is is irrational, and we need to see the um, we need to see evidence of how they've been uh, terroristic. So that's where we're at. What kind of advocacy do you think will actually change things? Well, first of all, my my charge to the community, as again, as 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 an analyst looking at the sea of exceptionally impressive activism very rapidly is to say don't give up this is not a you know you get one call and done or you know you 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 work even until the potential prescription or designation of the IRGC this is a marathon not a sprint so culture change conceptual change my charge to the community doing all of this impressive work around the world is do not give up do not get disheartened this is a thing that involves continuity, constant handholding, constantly being able to share why what is happening in Iran matters for Western values and Western interests, and that this is one of the few areas of the Middle East where you can be in concert with your mm. values and your interests rather than in sheer conflict with. And you don't even have to mention any of the other places for partisan reasons where that may be like this mm. rather than like this. That point will not fall death on the ears of Western policymakers. And so from that, I have one lateral, one bit of advice, which is not only just keep it up, um, and that will be fulfilling it of itself, but no, this is my personal view, no more only 
human rights meetings in the sense that forever, and that's why the IRGC debates matter so much, and that's why this is so impressive, such that it's not about only satellite inter internet or reforming government broadcasting. Uh, it is about having specific policy asks, right? The, the, the ask of not going back into a deal that would reward the Ayatollahs and the IRGC with millions, if not billions, is amazing to hear. The ask of using a legal mechanism to punish a group which espouses and engages in terrorism on a daily basis is amazing to hear. The using the idea of this widening radius of proliferating Iranian drone threats. First, it was against the Arabs and the Israelis. Now it's against the Ukrainians. Who will it be against next? Having our community be able to point to these things is going to be key to get them to take us more seriously than human rights advocates. And I say that because not I have a particular disdain for human rights advocates, it's because I feel for them so bad because so often in policy debates, particularly in Western capitals that involve Iran, the preference, and I hate to say this, is to only focus on the things that go boom. And if we have brilliant Iranian Americans, brilliant Iranian Canadians, brilliant Iranians in the diaspora around the world, only going in and talking about the protests and not having clear policy asks, they'll be exceptionally kind, they'll be exceptionally polite, but then they'll go back to business as usual. Right. So you have to do what I mentioned at the Nufti event, which is to connect the dots for the policymakers. Show them why a secular, liberal, nationalist, democratic Iran would have a fundamentally different foreign policy. Why this is in their interest as much as it is in your interest. And they call that in politics log rolling, the merging of interest to get something better. Let me ask you, um, this is, uh, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's, it's, um, uh, it's an education talking to you and getting a, uh, uh, your perspective on, on what's happening. And, and, and I want to move beyond just the U S and the EU, because as we know, when it comes to Iran today, um, Iran policy has moved East and, um, particularly China is a big player. Um, Beijing recently brokered a deal to normalize relations between Iran and spoiler alert, Saudi Arabia, uh, I mean, this caught a lot of us by surprise. It caught, you know, I, I sort of did a double take when I saw the news. We get Iran's incentive and maybe even China's. Why Why have the Saudis seemingly suddenly decided to engage with Iran? It seems counterintuitive. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this deal. It requires a little bit of unpacking. But, you know, there is... Sectar ethno-sectarian animosity between Islamic Republic and Saudi Arabia, that's been well documented. The Islamic Republic has tried to export its vision of regional order, its revolution ever since it's around. That's been well documented. We all know this. There's a, there's a very interesting Khomeini line I'm going to butcher, but he's talking about if they forgive the Americans, if they forget about Israel, if they look past Saddam, they will never forgive the Al Saud. That's how deep-seated the Islamic Republic's animosity with Saudi Arabia is. Um, so the Saudis have lived on the front lines of this threat. The problem is for us in the West, we have been used to a particular snapshot of Arab views towards Iran, mm -hmm. a snapshot of these views uh, circa Syrian war and Yemen war, uh, where there is a you know much more, more hawkish vibe towards Iran in the GCC states, sure. uh, particularly from UAE and Saudi. But the problem is these states which live on the front lines of the threat from the Islamic Republic, the drone threat, the missile threat, and I'll tell you, I've been in war games, uh, and the Iranians know this, the Arabs know this. 
in in war games that those states suffer the most catastrophic civilian infrastructural damage because it's usually the low cost place where the regime punches back after it, it is hit with something whether israelis or americans or in whatever kind of you know war game you're thinking to understand iranian national security planning those are all the places uh, that get hit and the problem is the arabs know it because they've been hit in real life too in 2019 you remember what happened with the attack on the you know uh, saudi aramco in eastern saudi arabia two sites drones and cruise missiles you know uh, several million barrels uh, uh, production stopped um this is this is critical stuff so those states when they felt like the west and in particular america did not have their back they do things that states normally do which is to hedge the problem is the Islamic Republic has set up a security strategy that is akin to a handshake and a knife. They put the knife behind your back and try to force you into a handshake. Hmm. They're not trying at the moment, you know, in the short to medium term to turn Saudi Arabia, which is an American partner still, um, despite the drama, uh, into an Islamic Republic overnight. They're trying to get the American order to bow deeper and deeper and deeper and accommodate a rising Islamic Republic. And the way they do that is they put pressure with the arms and the funds and the material support to the proxies. You know, the Houthis in Yemen to the Shia militias in Iraq to the IRGC in Iran have all struck Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is facing multi-dimensional air and missile threats. So you're saying Sa the Saudis feel pressure to, to present an olive branch to Iran? Absolutely. And that pressure grew when not only during the Trump administration, they didn't feel like militarily there was enough of a clear red line against the Islamic Republic, but during the Biden administration, where they, in my view, wanted to be seen as reaching out. So there were about six rounds from 2021 to recent of direct bilateral, often sponsored by the Iraqis, by the way, meetings between the Saudis and the Iranians where ostensibly the Saudis wanted an end to the war in Yemen because the Iranians are supporting the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And, of course, to reestablish diplomatic ties. But, but haven't the Saudis, I mean, other than Israel, isn't isn't Saudi Arabia the, the sort of number one country that's that's sponsored, uh, you know, uh, tried to, I mean, whether it's propaganda or education, tried to tell the world about Iran. It's, it's the Saudis fund Iran International, the, the television network that is daily putting out things that are, you know, against the Iranian regime. So this is why it seems counterintuitive to me. I mean, the, the thing is, states can walk and chew gum at the same time. So <laughs> they think that they can actually try to, you know, tempt the Islamic Republic into diluting some of these threats. I think you and I think that that is a fool's errand. But it is an errand that they are pursuing out of a necessity because they live in the front on the front lines. And they believe that whether it was the Bush administration and the freedom agenda, whether it was the Obama administration and the, the quest for a nuclear deal and going behind regional states' backs, whether it was the Trump administration and the unclear responses to Iranian use of force, or whether it's the Biden administration calling Saudis a rogue state or a pariah state, and then the politics of oil diplomacy, the politics of getting back into a deal, structurally the Saudis see America as being a bit more of a wobbly partner mm. uh, than meets the eye. And then when you marry that with not just the Iranian knife, but the Iranian knife and handshake to try to force a policy of accommodation out of Riyadh, just like they already forced one out of the UAE in 2019. And then you marry in the China element, which is to say that China is Iran's top trading partner. China is also Saudi's yeah, top I trading can't, partner. Yeah, I can't believe, and Israel's top trading partner. 
I think Israel is like within the first, second, or third, but it's it's in the top three. Right. And with the UAE, I think it's in the top three as well. I don't know if it's number one, but it's in the top one to five. I, I think I, I would have to double check. But it's buying the same thing from the Iranians and the Saudis. So you put this piece in together, the net losers, of course, are America and Israel from this type of situation. But this is, in my view, a self-inflicted wound uh, of U.S.-Saudi relations that involves how the U.S. has not necessarily been able to manage the Iran crisis. And this is where the blowback is being felt on seeing things through the China only or Russia only lens and not realizing that China and Russia see things as much more interconnected than we do. And they're able to kind of do low probability, high impact things like be moving into this region further and further. And the Chinese say we do trade, we don't do politics, but with trade comes politics. Yeah. And this is exhibit A of it. Yeah, China has a very sly form of um, imperialism that is very different from 20th century imperialism where you move the tanks in. But it, uh, but it, it may be more effective, uh, the, the kind that China is um, involved in right now. And I, I, let, me, let me get to the rise of China in, for just a moment. But just Maybe like mercantilism. <laughs> that's right. J- just before that, though, and if I can make a sidebar observation, uh, you know, this deal with Saudi Arabia and Iran or any kind of um, rapprochement, if you want detente, whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, speaking of 20th century terms, uh, this has happened amidst an uprising in Iran, amidst something that many of us have been calling a revolution in Iran. It's quite telling in the sense that I don't think the Saudis or any country would seek normalization with Iran if they really thought that a regime change was imminent. It's a, it's a, it's a little heartbreaking, but I mean, it suggests to me that Riyadh or Saudi Arabia does not think this regime is going anywhere anytime soon. Whatever your take on that, beyond that, uh, and not just about the Middle East view of this, the European and, and, and foreign view of this as well, it's harder for you know you and I to make the, the case to Western policymakers, be they in Europe, UK, Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, wherever, that they should be downgrading and cutting diplomatic ties. Because the first thing they will now point to and say, but look, those who live on the front lines right. of this threat right. are hedging more and more and more. And not only the Iranians, you know, the Iranians are now helping their sole state sponsor, a sole sole state partner in the region, the Assad regime in Syria, which has had three rain butchering people for over a decade there, uh, be rehabbed as well. And um, it, it is a very, very bitter pill to swallow and tough thing to see coming out in real time. Um, but, but again, I, I, let me just small caveat, small footnote mm-hmm. to this. Because these guys, the Saudis and the Emiratis, have lived on the front line of the threat for so long, they are no fools. I think as quickly as this comes, as quickly as it can go, mm. I think that I don't think that they know that they believe that the regime will change or moderate its behavior overnight. I believe they see this as a political expediency, a maslahat of their own, if you will, given their larger problems with mm. an external superpower and their perceived real short to medium term problems with their neighbor. Uh, and this is, again, this deal cannot be seen as born in a, in a vacuum. It is very much a response to this. And that's why it has to be a wake up call for a better Saudi policy in Washington. Otherwise, we're going to do an own goal and help the Iranians with their foreign policy, which is to facilitate a U.S.-Saudi divorce. But if, if so much of what those 
in, in the diaspora, um, and maybe even within Iran, have been who've been wanting to see the end of this regime or wanting to see change in Iran. If so much of the argument has been isolate Iran politically, uh, economically, you know, uh, uh, make make it a pariah, make it difficult for this regime to survive. Um, both Russia and China in a big way are playing major roles in keeping the regime alive. It gets a lot more complicated when they're playing ball with Iran and you add in, of course, Saudi Arabia and, you know, North Korea and whoever else is, is uh, helping out in the meantime. Um, can you foresee a way to deter Chinese and Russian collusion with the Islamic Republic, especially with the the enmity now between Russia and the U.S., uh, with the Ukraine war and all all that's going on geopolitically? Um, if it's to deter collusion, no, because the trend lines for that collusion and that partnership, uh, I think if there's a Russian phrase, so you know, let's take stock of each of these three regimes right now, quite literally. There is an authoritarian club that if you want to borrow an old, old, old DC phrase is basically constituting a new axis of evil. Uh, there are threats to their own people, first and foremost, there are threats to their immediate neighborhood, and there are threats at the macroeconomic level and the 500,000 foot level to the liberal led world order. So in terms of interest, strategy, values, these guys are threats, threats, threats. And like the World War II era definition of an alliance, Meiji Japan and Nazi Germany didn't look alike, but they ultimately were shooting in the same direction. And that's what sustains an alliance. And the more each of these three states has problems with the regional balance of power, plus their own relationship with America, the tighter this partnership is going to become. On the China-Iran stuff, everyone knows the oil issue in and out. Pre-deal, during deal, post-deal, pre-sanctions, during sanctions, oil sanctions. China is the economic artery through which the Islamic Republic breeds. Every policymaker in the West has to, in my view, do a better job of integrating the Iran problem into the blank bilateral relationship. If you want to fix the Iran problem, if you have issues with the Islamic Republic's foreign and security policy, nuclear program, repression and treatment of its own citizens at home, you have to go after the people who are underwriting right, that. Right. And that involves getting tough on China. But what what does it mean to get tough on China? I mean, what we had a guest here before, too, who said the U.S. has the capability to encourage China uh, to stop buying the oil from Iran. Um, I, I'm not sure how that is done, but what, what kind of leverage does the West have to say, hey, China, stop playing ball with this regime? You want to make sure that the Iran issue is as costly of an issue and as much of a headache for the Chinese as possible. So that actually means tight sanctions enforcement, increasing enforcement, not just on the sale, supply, transfer of oil, but the storage of oil, uh, which has been part of the secret sauce of the Chinese going after ship-to-ship -ship transfers, be it in the Persian Gulf, in the Indian Ocean, or in the South Pacific, going after the actual insurance companies and vessels that do this stuff. You know, one small bit of good news is that the Biden administration has occasionally been enforcing oil sanctions as of last May. This needs to be stepped up on steroids. There also is a, is a legal predicate for the U.S. to go after. Biden did it. Trump did it. They need to do it more. Um, actually seizing these tankers when they violate oil sanctions, that can be considered as well. And then, you know, the Chinese are already buying oil from the Saudis and many other places. Uh, you may want them to, you know, 
wean off of Iranian oil or make Iran as costly as possible for them. The problem is the Iranians in response to this will discount their oil even more and help take on more of the burden sharing when it comes to smuggling and illicit operations. So the Chinese will never be rid of them, but that you want the Chinese to downgrade their relationship with the Iranians. Um, but the problem is, again, this is a one cut in a way larger death by a thousand cuts type of scenario. It's not only going to be the sanctions and the oil and the enforcement alone. But if we don't get this part right, you will not get anything else right. Because major Chinese tech companies for almost over a decade, at least five to eight of which are sanctioned uh, by the U.S. Uh, for doing things like facial recognition software, uh, supporting the Uyghur genocide, um, doing things like Internet monitoring, mobile message to message monitoring. Uh, are now transferring those skills over to the Iranians. And they're present and they're registered literally uh, on, on Iranian business mm -hmm. registries and they're present in the Iranian cyberspace and, and, and digital landscape. And they're aiding and abetting the Islamic Republic's aggression against its own people. So it's not just a foreign security policy problem. It is increasingly now a repressive apparatus problem as well. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you for, for doing this today. Uh, I guess um, before I let you go, I mean, I, I want to ask you this and I want it, uh, I want an honest answer. Don't talk it off or, or say something to, uh, for the sake of trying to make people feel better. Are you disheartened that um, with where we are today compared to, to some of the hope? I mean, there was this moment in, I don't know, October or November where you felt like the Biden administration felt like they had to say something. Europe was, was aflame. Uh, people were calling for the resignation or the firing of Robert Malley. There was so much going on. How optimistic are you about a change in Western policy on Iran anytime soon now? Depends how you define soon. You know, to me, the exogenous shocks will always drive a Western knee-jerk response. I don't see the administration getting ready for a nonpartisan or bipartisan protest policy playbook. But if I know anything about the Iranian people, the trend line is that the period of time between protests is diminishing and the level of dissatisfaction is increasing, which means another exogenous shock can produce an equal or greater kind of outpouring. And it would be a shame if that happens again and once again, Europe and America and the EU and the UK and the US and whoever is again caught flat-footed mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on this issue. Uh, you know, even the protests after Massa Amini's killing in September 2022, those weren't the first major nationwide anti-regime protests of 2022. You know, this is part of a larger trend in Iranian society starting in December 2017 at the earliest or at the latest, latest, if not earlier, mm -hmm. that is beyond the JCPOA politics, beyond the drama of reform, the overpromise and underdelivery of so many things of the Islamic Republic, beyond the humiliation of the average Iranian citizen. And they are saying it themselves in two beautiful slogans I'll say here, which is Esla Talab Usul Yara, the which is reformist, principalist, the jig is up or the game is over. And then one particularly about America, which is in twenty eighteen this this slogan came up and continues to be chanted. Uh our enemy is right here. They lie when they say it's America. Yeah. If Western policymakers only listen to these two things, yeah. they too might drop this obsession with the JCPOA and take their cues from the streets. So I'm disheartened today, but there is room for optimism tomorrow. Uh, thank you. And um, to be continued, I really appreciate your time today. I, I appreciate yours. And thank you to your audience. And uh, thank you and to all your staff for having me. 
and hopefully it's the beginning of many more conversations. Absolutely. Cheers, Behnam. Cheers. Behnam Taleblu in Washington, D.C. It's full time for Rook for today. Remember, for all things Rook-related, our previous episodes, our information, our shop, where you can buy our free Iran t-shirts. They're not free Iran t-shirts. They're free Iran t-shirts. Check them out at our website, rookmedia.com. Uh, thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Talented Anihita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Get Well You Guys, Savvy Roham, Aray Meritad, Sound Person Louise. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashi. Bashi.